Parshas Truma. Friday and Shabbos will be Rishchidish, Shemiyat Hashem. Rishchidish Adar Aleph is the beginning. As it says, Mishanichnas other marbin besimcha. When other comes in, we have to add joy and simcha. And when it comes to the two others, there's other aleph and other beis, other rishon, other sheni. We have a tremendous advantage, and the advantage is that it's sixty days instead of thirty days that we add in simcha. Other is a month of simcha, of happiness, of joy, rejoicing. The Rebbe speaks many times about the plus of having two times other, other aleph, other sheni, other aleph beis, other rishon, other sheni. And the plus is the fact that we have not only 30 days of rejoicing, but 60 days. Since we say, Mishinichnas Adar Marben Besimcha, it also means not only we add a little bit of simcha. Not only we add a little bit of simcha, but we add simcha on each day in each and every way. And if you'll have occasion to go to 770, you will see Starting Thursday night, every night after Seder, there's live music and dancing for the rejoicing of, Sim- of Simchas Chedesh Adar. Today, Baruch Hashem, we also zeichet to Abris Mila of Shal Tzvi. Our new grandson, Baruch Hashem. When we say the Teda, the Chuppah, the we mean it in a physical way as well, not just in a expression. We physically mean that we want to see the child grow to Teda, the Chuppah, the Maisim Tevim. Interestingly, there's no mention of Parnassah. No mention of money. It's only Teda and Chupa and only spirituality and spiritual things and concepts. The truth is, though, just like Yisachar and Zvulun, as we're going to discuss in this week's Parsha. Yisach and Zvulun had a beautiful pact deal they had together. The deal was one would sit and study Torah. Smach Zvulun b'tzisecha, Yisachar b'yelecha. Yisachar sat and studied Torah, and Zvulun went out and did the work. Zvulun earned for both of them. God provided Zvulun with double parnasah so that he could support Yisachar as well. And they shared in everything. They shared in the monetary and they shared in the spiritual. They shared in the spirituality of their learning of Torah, of Yitzchulam, and of the Panasa of Yitzchulam. <laughs> There's a fellow, actually they say a true story of Kedoza. He lived next to a musician. Musician played a violin. And he played this violin, he played every night, he would play the same piece of Mozart.
In the beginning, it was pleasant. But if you ever heard the same piece of music over and over and over, you'll realize what monotony means. And sometimes it gets from monotonous to downright painful. But he got to a point where he knew every single note and every single nuance of this piece of music from Mozart. (laughs) One day he comes outside and he sees there's a musician that's going to be performing this piece of Mozart. He decides to do something very smart. He decides he's going to go to this concert and he's going to sit in the front row and he's going to catch him. Since he knows every single note that has to be taken in this piece of music, he's going to catch this fellow by mistake. And when he catches him by mistake, he's going to make a Hatsaga, he's going to make a big Bayetzaku. Bikitzer. He goes to the concert and he um, and he listens and he listens and he listens and he runs into a major problem. His major problem was he didn't recognize the piece. He said, how is this possible? I know the piece perfectly. I heard this piece from inside out. And it doesn't compare to the other guy's piece. This is not the music this other guy plays. So immediately he ran back to his neighbor and he said to him, You know that piece you play every night? Mozart, he says, yes. He says, I went to hear, um, I forgot the name of the musician, Yehudi something, and he played it, and it was the same, but it was totally different. So he told him, like Tov, he told him, because when I play it, I play Mozart. When he plays it, he plays Yehudi. He plays his music. I'm copying Mozart. So what you're listening is to Mozart's piece. His improvisation of this piece is coming from his pnim, coming from his soul, coming from his innards, it's totally different. And that's why it, ex- it, it expresses itself in a total different form. So much so that it's unrecognizable. You don't see it anymore. You don't hear the same notes in the same tune. Tell a story. Hitler was going to one of his major parades. He was going to one of his major parades and there were two Jews that found out where he was going to be passing that he would be very, very um, exposed or they'd be able to shoot at him. So they hid themselves, they got themselves a perfect hiding spot between rocks right over the overpath, over the overpass. And they waited. And they knew exactly what time he was going to be coming, and this is it. This is going to to destroy this man. They're going to kill him. Two o'clock, he was supposed to pass by. At ten to two, they started gearing up to make sure the gun is clean, to make sure that their shot's going to be good. They're looking through their scopes. They see exactly the point where he's going to walk through. Five to two, they're getting into position. They're getting into position. Each sniper has his own gun. And they're getting into position. They're ready. Two o'clock. Hitler doesn't come. Two o five. Two ten. At two twenty. 
One Jew turns to the other and says, Oh, I'm getting worried. You think something happened to him? The thought of a person, of the people, was they have to make sure what they want to do is going to happen. They get so involved sometimes, though, in what they're thinking, Mm -hmm. they don't even put it into what they're trying to say. Were they concerned that something happened to him? No, they wanted to kill him. (laughs) But it didn't, it didn't, yeah, it didn't, maybe something happened. The the nature of the person was that, oy vey, if the guy is not here, something must have happened to him. I, it's the person I want to kill. (laughs) So, so, it's, 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 Nature someone person. stole their job. So where did he go? I don't know if it's actually interesting. <laughs> you know what, there is a story like that. We learned this week, about the building of the Mishkan. The Pasha starts off, Hashem says to Moshe, speak to the Jews, and they should take from me Tiruma. They should take from me Tiruma. May Ace Kalish, Ashayid Venaliba, from each person according to his heart, Tikhu as Trumasi. They should take my Tiruma. And then the Pasik says, Pasik mentions three times the word Tiruma. Let us therefore analyze what Tiruma is being referred to and in what way was this Tiruma used. Rashi tells us, and I believe my son had it on his homework this week, what are the three trumas that are being discussed here? And Rashi immediately tells us the three trumas are mentioned here. One is truma bekalagulvelas, that they made the adanim with them. The adanim. No. Adanim. Ah, uh, the adonim what were used to join together the pieces of the walls. The beams were put into adonim. Sockets. Says the lady section. The second. Was a bekelagulgelis used for kabbonis sibur, for the sacrifices that people did together? And thirdly, was for the general upkeep of the mishkan. Very, very strange. Um. Proportions here. The Gemara Yerushalmi tells us that this, in essence, was three different reasons. Three different reasons why the Torah has to mention the word Tiruma. The reasons why the Torah says the word Tiruma three times is to enumerate these three forms of Tiruma. In essence, though, we have to understand and grasp what took place here, what transpired. The people were told to bring a machsis a shekel. So much so, this half a shekel, he'oshir lo yarbe v'hadal lo yamit. The Torah tells us we don't care who's rich and who's poor. We want only a half a shekel. And they would do a head count of the Jewish nation with this half a shekel. We'll learn later in Pash Kisisa about this. 
The entire essence of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the home in which God chooses, as the Pasik says here, the Migdash Bishakanti Bisaikam make for me a Migdash so that I may dwell amongst you, amongst them. The entire essence of this Mishkan was to improve unity amongst the Jews. To improve unity. A carbon tzibur was a carbon that not anybody knew who was doing, what was doing, what was happening for it. It was a sacrifice that was brought in general formation. It had nothing to do with the Pesach, had nothing to do with the Sukkot, had nothing to do with Yomtev, the general Karbanis. Every day we have a carbon Tamid, and on Yomtev we have Musif, and there's Mus, the Musafim, the Shredish, etc. These Karbanis were brought by, from the entire nation through this Machsa Shekel sponsorship. It was a united effort, and being a united effort, of course, nobody felt superior to anyone else. This is an extreme, extreme lesson to each and every one of us. What? You have your Skype off on the phone? I'm going to call it again. The lesson being. The lesson being that we are not an entity of our own. No Jew is an entity of their own Oh, caught me. He wants me to buy Skype today. I can't I can't buy it today. I'll talk about it another time. No Jew is an entity of his own, on his own in that every Jew has to rely on a second Jew. Every Jew has to realize that whatever I am, it's because there's another Jew that is a counterpart. And not only that, but even more so. When a Jew says, I want to, re- I want to retract, let the rest of the nation do what they have to, I'm going to live my way, I'm going to do my things, I'm going to live the way I have to, that's going to be comfortable for me. By saying this, the person thinks they can possibly exclude themselves from the entity known as Kalal Yisrael. And here the Torah tells us there is no such thing. You cannot separate yourself from the Kalal Yisrael. There was a fellow that was a shul-goer. Shul-goer meant that he was there three times a day, every single day. He didn't miss a minion. Wonderful fellow. What else he did in life, it didn't matter really. I mean, not for this particular issue. He was part of the minion every single day in shul. Three times a day, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. By him, it was a snowstorm. We can relate to that around here. Snowstorm, and it was, uh, hey, you didn't want to slip, you didn't want to fall, it was too cold. I'll dive in at home. Snowstorm left residue. For Mircha, I got a few meetings I don't want to miss, I don't want to get late. I'll dive in my office. Driving in the snow is very tiresome. Why is it more tiresome than driving on a sun, sunny road, on a road the sun day? I don't know, but the fact is, it is. You go on the road, a nice blizzard. That same three miles that you drive every single day pulls the kishkas out of you. The intensity, the concentration, the whatever it might be. We go to the psychologists and to the psychiatrists and we'll ask them, what is it that does it? So he came home from work and it was my time and he was just too tired. 
Now he didn't realize that he's not the only one in Shul, and therefore a minion has to be ten people. And when a few people, the minion isn't fifty, sixty people every day, and a few people decide what he decided to get a snowstorm affect him in the morning, and busy schedule in the afternoon, and exhaustion at night. He doesn't realize he might be one of the ten. And also, the Yitzhahara does a wonderful job. And the Yitzhahara took this fellow by the horns. Now that he got a shachris, a mincha and a mayav out of the guy. And the next morning shachris, he got the guy to, to oversleep. He overslept, he woke up, he saw, oh, you know, it's late, I must have been so exhausted last night. Quickly, he jumped up, he showered, he took his towels and filled, and he dove into the house again. Eventually, he stopped feeling guilty of not davening in shul. Eventually, it just became the regular thing. He would daven shachas mechemayev, but at home. One day, He's sitting by his comfortable fireplace and he's warming his hands and the knock on the door. Nice, strong, winds outside. Blustery winds, cold. And who could possibly be knocking on the door? It must be terrible. Someone out there in such ferocious weather he runs to the door, he opens the door for the fellow, it's the rabbi. The rabbi from the shul. Rabbi, what brings you here such a night? Rabbi doesn't say a word. He comes inside, says, come in please, it's freezing. Goes inside, he closes the door. The rabbi walks over to the fireplace. He takes one of the tools that they use to prod or to turn the tolls, the, the uh, coals, and he picks up one coal, and he takes it out of the fireplace, out of the burning flame, and he puts it on a stone outside the fireplace. He sits for a few more minutes, and he walks out. The man watched this coal for a few more minutes and saw the coal do the inevitable. It got extinguished. Now that it was separated from the fire, it burnt out. Fire has a very interesting power to it. Um, it consumes. But unlike a human body, unlike the human mind, which learns how to store, and store means if you give it something, it knows how to save it tomorrow. Fire doesn't do that. Whatever you put inside, it consumes. It doesn't think that i got to burn for four hours. So I'll burn this piece of wood now, and this piece of wood a little later, so I can go for four hours. If you'll put in one wood at a time, it'll obviously do that. When you put everything at once, it will burn everything at once. However, Anything that comes out of the fire, being not part of the unit of the flame, extinguishes. Next morning, the fellow was up bright and early in shul. He understood exactly what the rabbi told him. By taking yourself away from the tzibur, by removing yourself from the minion, and not coming to shul, Eventually, your davening is not going to be a davening anymore. Eventually, it will get weakened out, and like the coal, extinguish Hashem.
Avedis Hamishkan was just for that. Avedis Hamishkan was to teach us how everybody has to work as a unit. Whether it be the Kruvim that were on top of the Oren, which sometimes faced each other and sometimes faced the walls, and they signified what went on in Kal Yisrael. When the Jews were behaving and doing right, they faced each other. And when the Jews were not, they faced the wall, they faced back, back, back to back. So wait, in Akko's time, that happened? Hmm? In Akko's time, that happened? Probably. But he wasn't looking over your hood no, but it didn't mean that they were not. They were at war. I didn't know if they were at war. It wasn't. So when the Jews were not behaving. When they were not doing what they were supposed to do. And they faced each other. They had faces of children. Again, to show us, we don't only refer to the adults, and sometimes we tell children. Don't mix in the adult conversations. An interesting pasuk that tells us how they got their hands on this wood. Where did this wood come from? They took it with them from Egypt. Why did they take wood from Egypt? Because this is wood. Trees that Yaakov Avinu brought with him when he went to Mitzrayim, planted them in Mitzrayim, and knew, Beruach HaKadosh says Rashi, that one day the Jews would leave Egypt and would need this wood. And therefore he planted it then, so that 200 years, 400 years later, they would take it out with them. Now the question is, of course, It was a beautiful idea, thought. But isn't new wood better? Wouldn't it have been better if they took some nice, strong, new trees and bought it on the way, on the road over here, from wayside? What was the idea of taking old, 200-year-old wood and using that for the kashim, the beams of the Mishkan? The last one. Today's day and age, the generation has a little problem. One of the little problems is they're not in touch with the older generation. Now, in my times, when I grew up, anybody that had a grandfather was a phenomenon. Because a lot of the generation lost their grandparents in the war. Personally, I merited the two sets of grandparents. Not only to see them, not only to know them, but I knew them very, very well. I knew them well enough. My mother's father, my mother's parents lived in the same house as us. I grew up with them in the house. Father's parents only two blocks away. But my grandfather, Elvishalom, was supposed to come to London to my wedding. So he was alive and well for years after my wedding. He saw a few of my children, brothers. But the majority of the generation did not have grandparents. And if they had grandparents, they looked at them and they said, they're old European people. Even in the 60s, the youth were looking at the European Jews and saying they're antiquated. And antiquated. Nat will have to correct that word. They're totally, totally 
fossils. They don't relate to us, they don't, we can't relate to them. First of all, they speak Yiddish only. And second, look how they dress. And thirdly, look how they act and behave. And they're so uncouth. They didn't know how to... You know, the <laughs> they didn't use the toothpick. Whatever they found on the table, they could tear off from something and they'd clean their teeth with that. Or something of the... Of the there were those grandparents that came to America and became Americanized. Definitely. But generally the generation looked at the grandparents and said, yeah, yeah, I love you. I love you. You're my grandmother, my grandfather. But I can't see myself doing what you do, following your ways, and becoming what you are. Can't, I can't relate to it. I can't. It doesn't jive with my emotions. How sad. How sad, and look at the results of generations after, where you have, unfortunately, the intermarriage, unfortunately, the um, lack of, of love that our grandparents tried to institute in us. Yaakov Avinu said, I want my children to think about me at all times. I want my children to always think how not only was I a patriarch, not only was I their forefather, I was a foundation. I was a fundamental part of their existence. So much so that I am a keresh on the walls of the Mishkan. I am a beam. I am a support beam that holds up the walls of the Mishkan. This is how I want you not only to remember me, but to follow in my ways. And that's why Yaakov Vino insisted on planting this, and why the Jews insisted on taking this piece of wood. Then we find another phenomenon. A piece of, some say wood, some say metal, that was known as the Briach Hatichain. This Briach Hatichain had a very interesting function. The beams on the outside of the Mishkan had rings. Now, on the bottom, they had pegs that went into the sockets. They're done. The rings were obviously, those who do construction, were put on each beam so that a crossbar can come through, and with, hence joining the beams together, not only with their sockets on the bottom, but also along the back, the outside. So in essence, when I tell you that the Mishkan was X amount in this direction, X amount in that direction, 32 cubits in the long length and 12 cubits in the width, substantial size of an edifice, I would think if you found something over 32 cubits, you'd cut it down, and you'd put it through the loops on one side, and the rings of one side. And another piece you'd put on there, because it was three sides to the Mishkan, three walls. So on the three walls, on one, along one wall, I'd run the one support into the rings, and the crossbar, and one, the other wall, and then the third wall, have three different crossbars. Teirah tells us the Briach HaTichayin was one piece. And this piece was the crossbar for the right wall, the left wall, and the back wall. For the Maidiv, for the Tzofen, the Dorim, and the Maidiv. Now, modern technology 
has a very, very wonderful thing to it, in that if we go to the movies, we know that they can invent these type of things. That they snip like that, right? Seichel and Anushi, the human mind, in the minds, in the eye, in the mind eye. How did you get a piece of wood? How did you do that? Says Mefarshim, the Birchatichen was also a special piece of wood. Avram Avinu had planted this, and he threw it into the Yamsuf. So by Kriyas Yamsuf, when they left Kriyas Yamsuf, when they got whatever they got from the Yamsuf, they got this tree as well. These trees <coughs> that Avram Avinu threw in. And this is why it's Vayikra Veshem Hashem Kel Elam. When he planted it, it says, he called it name of God and it will be forever. This wood was then used, the 70 Amos of wood was used and this became a Biyachatichin. And because it was so spiritual and so holy, it made its own turns. There are other opinions that say no, the Biyachatichin was from Yaakov's staff. Yaakov had a walking staff, famous staff that he crossed the yard in, etc., etc. And this was the staff that he had used. Possibly, though, the beginning of the Parashas is a very interesting thing when it talks about This is the Truma you should take from them Zahav, Vachesef, Unachreshes The Torah could just say any kind of denomination of funding Obviously, the three denominations are Zahav, Kesef, Unachreshes Gold, Silver, and Copper why does the tailor have to enumerate the Zav, Chesef, and Nechesh's? Tumas on the same plane as giving tzedakah. I learned an expression now that I have to put together tzedakah for Yeshua. I learned a very, very interesting expression people use. I'm tapped out. I've tapped out means that I've given my charities. I've reached my max on my tar- charity level. Tapped out. Too many people tapped me on the shoulder and asked me for money this year. Tapped out. Taylor tells us every word counts. And therefore, Zav, Chesef, and Achishas are Rosh acronyms. Zav stands for <coughs> what? Zeh Hanoten Bari The person that gives in perfect health. The person that was healthy and had no issues, no problems, and decided he's going to give tzedakah. Zeha noten bari is zahav. And therefore, gold, of course, is the most precious of the three commodities. Kesef, Rosh Tevis, Keshiyesh, Sakanat, Pachad. Walking across a bridge, and the bridge starts swaying, and the person says, God, 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 I'll give you a thousand dollars to tzedakah. Please save my life. From Sakanat Pacha, the person gave the money. Is it something he wanted to do? No, not that he's giving it, he's giving it, but not something that he really said, I want to give this charity. Nechoshes is Nesinas Chela Sh'amar Tnu. The man lying on his deathbed, Rachman al 
And lying on his deathbed, they come to him and they say to him, the last pair of pants have no pockets. You can't take it with you. You have to give it tzedakah. So that's Nechayshas. That why did he give it? He's a chayla that they forced him to give. Shamar Tanu. And this is also therefore the translation of the three levels of which people give the tzedakah. The highest level, which is the gold or the platinum. And then there's the silver member and then there's the copper member. Someone's doing exercise, I think. Another acronym for the three. Zahav. This is a person that brings on his own. And then, Kesef. When the Gaboim come to his door, he doesn't go out to look to give charity, but only when they come to collect, he gives it. And then finally, Nechayshes is not Nechelke, Shikeshefu, Tchilash. He only gives when he forces him to. And this again translates, even if the donation might be bigger from the person that was forced than the person that gave with his full heart. But the intention is what counts. And that's therefore what the Torah tells us when God tells us about building the Mishkan. God says, Technically you should say, Make a Migdash for me, and I will dwell within it. Besocham is plural, but amongst them. So the Altarebbe explains that the Besocham refers to each and every Jew. The Migdash, do for me, make for me a Migdash, and I will dwell amongst you, because you, by doing mitzvahs, you, by studying Tera, are becoming a tabernacle in its own. And therefore I want to dwell within you, says God. Don't be only from the Nechoshes. The Nechoshes also has merit. The merit is that you did a mitzvah, you gave tzedakah. But try to ascertain. Nobody wants to live with the regular standard plastic card. They wanted to graduate, they wanted to become gold, they wanted to become platinum, or American Express black. (laughs) Go green. God says no. I want to dwell amongst you, I want to dwell amongst you in a way that I'm going to have the the Cadillac of service. That you should be a vessel that is in the highest possible level. What is that highest possible level? The union of Kezov. Rabbi once got up to a pulpit. Before he made his Shabbos speech, he says, Ladies and gentlemen, before I tell you about this Shabbos, I want to tell you that next Shabbos, I'm going to be speaking about honesty, integrity, about lying, how horrific it is. So do me a favor, ladies and gentlemen, so that you can grasp my lesson properly. During the course of the week, 
review chapter 28 in Leviticus. Chumash Vayikra, Perikhov Ches. Good. Came the next Shabbos, after he made his speech, comes the next Shabbos, and the rabbi stands up at the pulpit, And the rabbi says, before I start, don't tell me you didn't get a text today. I did get a text today. You did? The rabbi gets up at the pulpit and he says, ladies and gentlemen, before I start, just to be sure that you're going to understand my speech, who here, please, by raise of hand, read the chapter 28 in Leviticus? And immediately all the hands shot up. So proud of his congregation. Rabbi says, that's a beautiful, touching thing of you all to be so sincere. The only trivial problem is that Leviticus only has 27 chapters. Now let us speak about lying and integrity. (laughs) You have to. And the famous, famous story of Al-Tarebbe, where he was very proud, he taught a person, he taught a Kamtan, how to give. I gave him the, the will to want to give. The goal of Al-Tarebbe was just to make the person, bring the person to the realization of how holy the Mitzvah of Tzedakah is, and therefore he wanted to just bring him. And this is the idea of Tiruma, of giving the Tiruma to the temple, to the Mishkan. The famous story of the Balshantav. We'll finish with the story. The Chosidah wanted to go to Yisrael. And he pestered the Balshantav many times. And the Balshantav would not let him. Finally, Vashanta said, I see that it's something in the Gale and Nefesh, it's something so strong by you, I figure I'm going to have to give you permission to go. However, there's a special mikveh that I want you to immerse yourself in that mikveh before you commence your journey. Fellow acquiesced, he agreed, and he went into the mikveh. And as soon as he immersed, his head under the water, he had this yearning to open his eyes. He opened his eyes and he sees he's on a ship. He's on a ship and he's sailing to where it's a show. What a sight. And then as he's watching the ship, he's so involved, he realizes all of a sudden, I need air. And he goes up quickly out of the water to grasp for air, but he wants to see the rest of his vision. He goes, and as soon as he fills his lungs, he goes back down under the water and he looks, he opens his eyes again, and he sees the ship arriving at the shores of the Holy Land. It's amazing, and he's disembarking, and he's walking onto the land, and he falls on his face, and he begins to kiss the land of the Holy Land. But he's breathless. He comes up again, quickly, quickly grabs as much air as he can, and goes back down. And he sees himself walking, and he comes to the Temple Mount, Harabayis. And he's looking up at this magnificent edifice of the Beis Hamidosh. And he's there. And he comes up again. This time, over and over, doing this, you start your head starts to swoon. But he can't miss the rest of the story, and he goes down again, and he sees himself walking up Harabais, and he comes to the entrance of the base Hamikdash. It's amazing. The gates, the same gates that are described that he studied, he learned in Rambam, and he enters. But as soon as he enters, he needs air, and he comes back up again. 
And this time he takes enough air, he's determined he's going to see this through. And he goes back down, and he sees the menorah, and he sees the shulchan, and he sees the mizbeach. He's already in Kaidish. And he sees the curtain that goes, that leads to Kaidish HaKadoshim. And he's about to get to the curtain, and he can't anymore. He's collapsing, he comes up for air with this burning in his lungs, sensation of burning in his heart is even greater, because he has to see what's going on, he's gotten into the temple, when he gets enough air, he goes back down again, and he sees himself by the grasping the curtain, by the Kedesh HaKadoshim, and as he opens up the curtain, the Holy of Holies there, he sees the Baal Shem Tov sitting, and he realized, why do I have to travel to Israel to get and to amass and to gather any Kedusha, any, any spirituality? I have it right here with me in Mezhubush. I have it right here by the Vashem This is therefore the lesson of the Shachanti B'Seicham. We have to take within ourselves, each and every one of us has to make ourselves the vessel, the Mishkan for God, whether it be with the tefillin, the way we put on our tefillin every morning, how much time we put on tefillin, what kind of preparations we have beforehand, the going to shul, to daven with a minion, all these struggles and all these trials and tribulations are tremendous. <laughs> the keeping of Shabbos, the keeping of kosher. The, the, to somebody that does do it, they think it, they take it for granted. But as that coal that gets separated from the fire... Everyone is, is susceptible to God forbid who knows what if they don't see to it that they keep up and on a constant basis grow and go from strength to strength. And by doing this we will ultimately see the true Beis HaMikdash will ultimately be in Yerushalayim Rakhidash and will start the 60 days of Simcha with a true, true Simcha with the singing of the songs and the brachas that we make when we see and greet Mashiach Tzidkei.